it's our last sermon in um, Genesis until the fall, and so I thought I might just kind of go over a few things with you. When before I just I didn't mention this earlier, but um, Anna's doing well, William's doing well, everything's going good. A uh, little less sleep. I kind of like nod off. Holmes, you gonna wake me up? Yeah, no, uh, no, a little less sleep than normal. But Anna's mom's been with us, and it's been a real blessing. She's going back today. She's gonna fly out of Shreveport uh, this evening. And so uh, then the test will start, right? <laughs> Let's pray together as we um, start this morning. Father, we are thankful that we are able to gather together today and that we are able to study Your Word and hear from You. Lord, I just pray You would never let us take for granted the mercy that You've shown to us in speaking to us. And Lord, we thank You that You show us great faith in, in the models of the patriarchs, Lord, but we also see that their only hope is our only hope, and that is through a substitute dying in our place so that we might have life. I pray we would see that this morning, that we would savor it, that it would cause us to love you more and walk in gratitude. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm just going to run through a couple of things with you since it is the last th- sermon for the for this period of time for the spring. I just want to mention to you just a few things that we have studied throughout our study of Genesis. And so just kind of think with me, and you might turn to Genesis chapter 22 in preparation for where we're going to be. But as we thought, think, we started with, we began with God. And we said like as we initially started our study of Genesis, that we need to understand and unpack who God is. Now Genesis is doing that, but we began in that way because in the beginning was God. And we found out that God is all-wise and all-powerful and all-knowing and He is a just God and He's merciful. And we kind of unpack this gr- the great grand view of God as our Creator. And then we've seen glimpses of how He is going to be our Savior as we'll see this morning. As we move forward, we found out that God created a world and He filled it and formed it. And on the sixth day, He created man in His image. And He made man distinct from all other creatures. He is body and soul in the image of God. And then He's able to image God in how He lives and walks. And we found that out as we saw that. Now, God said to His image bearers that they were the stewards of His earth. And He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on on the earth, and he, so he, he gives them these positive commands, and yet there's one command that he gives that's negative. He says, you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so he lays that out for them and makes it clear. So there's all of this abundant blessing and this calling to do something great for the, the, the world God created, to, to, to be stewards of his kingdom on this earth, and all these beautiful things, but there's one thing they are not to do. Now, why did he ask them not to do that is because he wanted them to understand what it means to walk in, in faith and trusting him and learning from his direction and in seeing his wisdom and so so to, for them to come to him for everything for them to see him as their treasure and their guide and their wisdom and and their god and so he tells them not to do that and, and yet they re- reject him they turn away from god and they rebel against his will and they go their own way and they bring great 
destruction on their family and all throughout the Scripture. Now, one of the things God does is He tells them that someday there will be one who will crush the head of the serpent and there will be a... Really, He even creates for them this picture by sacrificing an animal and clothing them that reveals to them that they will, they will have a substitute for their sins. So we see this going on as we're progressing forward. Now, what we find out is after the fall of man, there is so much sin, it's, it's unbelievable the way that man goes. And we see that every thought of his heart, Genesis 6 says, is evil continually and God judges the world but extends mercy to one family, the family of Noah. Now as you progress through the study, we find out even Noah and his family, they would need someone to substitute for them because they too were sinners and they struggled with sin. As we progress through the study, we find out again that man begins to to want to be like God again. And they say, let us make a name for themselves. And they build this big tower and they want all this grandeur and all of this, uh, this glory coming to them. And yet God... He scatters them in judgment, but He doesn't forget about man because He speaks to this man out of all the nations of the earth. He calls out to a man named Abram. And He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. Abram, I'm going to give you descendants as the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to be a blessing to you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless you. And not only that, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But there was a problem. Abram did not have a son. And, and, and he, for 25 years he waited because he really didn't... All along the way, God had made this grand promise, but he had never had a child. And as he waited and waited and waited, finally the Lord caused his wife Sarah to conceive, and she bore a son. And God revealed in that son that His promise would continue with Abraham. But then that brings us to Genesis 22. And we come to this passage this morning and we are faced with something so horrific and so unbelievable, we just, you just almost can't believe it. Some of you probably grew up hearing the story and so it's not that astounding to you, but if you stop and think for a moment, He is telling him, you take your son and you make him a burnt offering. You slay your son, you lay him on the altar and he will die there. You kill your son for me. Everything is bound up in this promise, and yet He is calling him to do that, to to kill the one whom God had said, this is your promised Son, this is the one where the future will come of the nation, and all the blessings and all the promises will be there. Now, we find out that right at the last minute, God is going to rescue that Son and provide a substitute. And what do we learn? I think just overarching in this passage, it is this, God can be trusted to provide salvation for His people so that they might be lived. And He does, they might live, and He does so through a substitute. And we're going to see that throughout the Scripture over and over, and we're going to unpack that this morning. So hopefully you'll see that as we move forward, and it will be amazing as we think about what is God going to do to rescue a people for Himself? What will it cost? So let's start in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. 
Now, we, we say after these things, we just kind of rehearse that. After He's received the Son, after the Son has lived with Him for a number of years, after God has said, through this Son, the promise will come. After all of that, after all of the waiting, then after the fulfillment at some level where Isaac is born, then God is going to speak to him. I was thinking the other night, you know, sometimes with a baby you don't get to sleep at night all the time. And so sometimes you're up and you're thinking, man, how can I help this child go to sleep? And I thought, well, maybe, you know, the best thing for me is to take a walk outside. It's a clear night, and I'm walking along with our baby William, and I'm looking up at the stars, and, and, I, and I was thinking about this passage. I've just been studying it all day long, and I'm thinking as I'm going through that, I was thinking about Abraham, and I don't know, probably had some sleepless nights. I'm not sure that he walked around outside. But there, there could be, in my mind as I was thinking about it, as he would look up at the stars, and then he would look down at his son, he would look up at the stars, and he'd look down at his son, and he would be whispering to him, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your descendants, Isaac, even though you don't understand it now, they'll be as the stars of the sky. And he keeps glancing up and thinking about God's promise to him and watching this sun. And yet, God now is calling to him to something so unimaginable. God is testing him. Now, why is God testing him with this, this, in this particular way? I mean, we don't know completely why this would be, but God does not test him so that he will like fail. Sometimes we think about that and you think, God is not like where we see in the Scripture, Satan will tempt people and he tries to get them to fail, to disobey God, to walk away. God is testing him so that he would be found faithful, so that he might grow in faith, but not just for him, so that we might grow in faith. And we see that over and over. Now, this is what Hebrews 12 says. For, they, for the earthly fathers discipline their children, but God does this also. He disciplines us so that we might grow in faith. It seems like not very good at the time, but He's doing that in our lives. He's helping us grow up, and that's what He's doing in this text. God is using this to, to, to complete Abraham, but not only that, to speak to us. Exodus 20, 20 says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, and that you may not sin. It is learning to trust God completely and fully. God wants above all that He would get total devotion. Sometimes I think, man, we don't really understand that, but God is calling us to radical obedience. He is calling Abraham to radical obedience where he is seeing God and he's saying God is leading him to something so astounding that he has to trust God and forget everything and say, I'm going to trust You, Lord. I'm going to look to You for Your direction and I'm going to trust You at whatever cost it may be. Maybe you've met people in your life where you feel like God has took them through amazing tests so that they might grow in faith and you grew in faith as a result. So one thing this does for us, again, is helps us understand what it means to persevere through God's test. It's learning to do that. The other is that we will see that in God's calling Him, that He is going to provide a substitute. It's like speaking a message to Israel back in those days, and they would say, see God, is, He's substitute. He brings about a substitution for Isaac, and we see that in this test, it is opening our eyes to see it. The Scripture, James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in 
nothing. So whatever the test may be, God is moving in our lives. He is accomplishing something, especially in this one, to even speak to us about His salvation. And so I think it's important that you see that. Now notice what he says, take your Son, your only Son, whom you love. What's He doing? He's not just speaking, He's speaking of Him as His only Son, the Son of the Promise. Remember, He sent away that first Son that was born. He was not the Son of the Promise. And now He's saying, Your only Son that you love. He's trying to emphasize multiple times here that we see the word Son, the Son, Son. And He's saying, It is Your only Son, this Son in whom all the promises hinge, this Son that You love more than Your own life, this Son that You would lay down Your life for, You take Him and go. One of the things about this, it's interesting, as you see, He says, And go to the land that I will show you, a place that I will show you. This reminds us of Hebrews 12, where God said, look, you go, you go and you leave everything that you know. Now He's saying, you go and you take and sacrifice the whole blessing of the promise in this moment. God is calling him to radical obedience. To where? The land of Moriah. The only other time in Scripture this is mentioned is in Second Chronicles 3.1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor. Now notice what it's saying. It's tied to the temple. He's taking him to Jerusalem there where many sacrifices would be throughout the history. Even the, Israel would speak of this and they would see this as something where God is showing this substitutionary thing taking place here. And I think it's important that we see. And then he says, offer him as a burnt offering. Again, over and over in Scripture, Israel will do this at the Temple Mount and this place. And it's a reminder of what God is doing as they are hearing this story. Now one author notes about this whole passage here. He says, here the saint is torn between his faith and the divine promises and the command to nullify them. Between his affection for God's gift and for God. Faith is living with the vision of trusting God and His promises. What's he doing? He is calling him to say, look, what do you cherish most? And oftentimes that's what we see God is doing so that He can be most glorified in our life. Now look at verse 3. So we leave that point where we see what does Abraham do? So God speaks to him and calls him. And then we notice, what does he do? He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He takes two servants with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You notice what he does. He's preparing, but he rises early to do so. It is like immediate obedience. You know how, have you ever had somebody tell you, like when I was a kid, my parents would say, go clean your room, and I'd be kind of like dragging my feet, you know, like, oh, you know, I might do that. Um, you know, I could think of them, I got to go to the restroom, I got to do this, I got to do that, you know, just find anything to get away from obedience. This is immediate obedience to God, and he is saying, and it's complete. He's not dragging his feet. He is moving forward and he's teaching him. Listen, he's traveling three days. If you thought about that just for a moment, have you ever had to wait for something that you knew was going to be difficult and and it just, it consumes your mind? You know, sometimes if somebody said, hey, do this and you did it real quick and it's over and you're like, I didn't even know what I was doing. Not here. 
It is three days walking alongside his son. It is three days in his mind. There's probably he was probably really quiet during that time, and he's thinking about all the things that are taking place. I mean, you would have all kinds of thoughts if you're just human and you're thinking, "How can I get out of this? Maybe I didn't hear God well. Maybe I'm just somehow mixed up." I mean, you could think of all different ways of trying to get out of what God has called him to do. It was not a rash decision. It was a settled resolve to obey the Lord. Lord. But really, this is time. That time was enough for the shock to wear off and him to be settled in his knowledge that God was calling him to a, an obedience that was beyond comprehension. Notice in verse 5 and 6, Abraham and Isaac are climbing the mountain alone. Now, I don't know why that he leaves the donkey. Some people say it may have been just rugged terrain that you couldn't take him up. They had to go alone. There was no other way. Now, notice what he says, though. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What does that mean? How, in the, I mean, in the middle of this, is he's working through over the, the, the last three days, is his, is his mind just, I mean, what is he thinking here? The Scripture makes this clear, and we'll look at that in a moment, but there's something about this that says this is a statement of faith. He is believing that God will allow him and his son to return. He, may, he has no idea how that may take place, but it is a statement of, I believe that we too will return. And you notice Isaac is placed, or the wood is placed in Isaac's hands. He has to carry it up this mountain. Now, one of the things about that is we know that he's older. He has to be a youth at this time to be able to carry this wood in his hands and to go up the mountain. And we'll look at some of the, the reason for that. But ultimately, we understand he's an older child, and so he is willingly following his father in obedience. He may even be stronger than his father at this time. Notice verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What is he saying to him? Could you imagine in that moment your son looking to you and saying, Where's the offering? Where's, what are we going to sacrifice? I see everything but the sacrifice. I mean, you could think about Abram's heart in that moment thinking, What do I say to my son? How do I explain to him what is about to take place? And he says to him, again, a statement of faith, God will provide for Himself the Lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went together. He says, God is going to provide. I am trusting God to, to provide what we need in this moment. Keep moving. In verses 9, as we kind of get, go forward, we see that this is a clear picture for Isaac that he is an obedient son. He goes to the top. His father lays out the wood. Then he binds Isaac. Again, Isaac may have been stronger. I mean, Abraham is old at this time. Isaac's just carried the wood up and he is now being bound by his father. And his father picks him up and he lays him there on the altar. It's a picture of complete and absolute trust and obedience to the will of his father. Then Abram reaches out his hand and it escalates. And all of a sudden you're thinking, I know this story, but what is going on? If you're again reading it for the first time, it comes to this place and he's raising up his knife and he's about to take the life of his son. With one stroke, he will kill his son and he will offer him up as, as a sacrifice. And, and what we see here, he reaches out his knife to stab his son to death. But the angel of the Lord comes 
And he says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, don't do this. Don't take the life of your son. I know, I know that you would do it. Now I know that you fear God. You have not even withheld your most priceless possession of all. You fear the Lord. I know this now. And Abraham passes the test. He knew that he had feared God. He was obedient to, to the levels that you and I could hardly ever understand. Sometimes when I'm looking at that, I think, how could someone be this obedient? How could they come to that place where they would say, I will do whatever God calls me to do, even at the cost of my child's life? He would rather take his son's life than be outside of the will of God. Have you ever seen the Lord call you to do something that just took I mean, just enormous amount of faith. I mean, that you knew it was only a gift from God that He would allow you to keep stepping forward. I don't know if you've been there, but it, certainly none of us have been at this situation. But so often in our lives, I think God has called us to, to do things often for His kingdom that we are called to a mountain-moving faith. Hebrews 11 speaks of this. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What's he saying? He is trusting God that God made a promise and He said through Isaac these blessings will come, these descendants will come, this, this, this blessing to the nations will come, and even if He had to kill His Son, God would raise Him from the grave. This is an astonishing faith here that God is infusing into the heart and life of Abraham. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Then the Scripture says, So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Can you imagine that? In this moment, God stops him and He says, no, I will provide in, in the place of your son. I'm going to provide a ram. He goes and takes the ram. He offers this offering to him. It's a very powerful picture of substitution. He is substituting for his son. He is laying this animal down. The animal will die in the place of his son. No longer does his son have to die. Now, he, this animal will die in the place of of His child. It's a powerful picture for us because God is about doing that throughout Scripture. Even with the children of Israel, He will say at this moment in time, all of Egypt's firstborn will die. And God says, look, go take an unblemished lamb and you for your firstborn and you sacrifice it and you take the blood and put it over the doorpost and the angel of death will pass over your house. He will not die. The substitute will die in His place. Over and over through Scripture, we see this taking place. Now notice what happens. After all of this has gone on, the Lord repeats the promise to him. And in verses 15 through 19, he says, Because you have been faithful, Abraham, I will bless you. The angel of the Lord, again, I think clearly in Scripture, in my mind at least, it's the, or best I know, I consider this to be the second person of the Trinity speaking to him. Over and over throughout Scripture, we'll see the angel of the Lord speak to someone, the eternal word. 
And he speaks to him and he swears, I swear by myself, I will bring this to pass. I will bless you. I will make your offspring as the stars of the sky and as or stars of the sky and also as the sand of the seashore. I will bring it to pass. He says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What's that speaking of? He's saying, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If you study the Scripture out, you'll see in Galatians 3, it says, this seed was Christ. He is the one who will bring blessing to the nations. This promise was once just grounded in what God had said and what He has accomplished, but now it's also somehow tied to the obedience of Abraham that God is allowing him to share in the promise being brought forth through His obedience in this moment. God has done something so astonishing. Now, we're going to keep moving here. The last little bit here, we're not read all that, but as you look at that last little section of text, what we see is there's a young lady's name, is her name is Rebecca. And what she's going to be is she is going to be the wife of Isaac. And so God is not only saying, look, Isaac, through him it's going to come, but now we get a little glimpse of his wife is now going to be born. They will have children and those children will have children and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. Now, what are the lessons today that you learn from this? Because I think I haven't brought out all the things that we would see. One is this. Abraham and Isaac are an example of faith. They really are. They are people that we can look to and say they trusted God at the, I mean, beyond imagination. I mean, we can't even understand that. They rested in what God said. They were completely obedient. They, they did what we would think, man, how could I ever do that? And they were a model for us. The Scripture over and over says, look, by faith this person, by faith. Hebrews speaks of, really, when it's speaking to the church in Hebrews, he goes through all these things saying, you have so much blessing, you have so much knowledge of God, now walk in the faith of these men before. Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, they walked with the Lord, it should inspire us to radical faith. But the greater lesson I think that we have to emphasize here is that the Lord provides. The Lord provides a substitute for Isaac. And I want to read a few passages. If you want to scratch them down, you can listen to those or you can write them down. Matthew, I mean Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Again, as a substitute who paid the penalty that they deserved, He gave His life. In John 1.29, when, when uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, it is substitutionary atonement. Jesus came and He took our sins, the death that we deserved, He took upon Himself. Second Corinthians verses 5, 19-21, it says, That is, in Christ God has reconciled the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. We are reconciled to God through the substitutionary death of Christ. It is our message. 
That is what we speak to people. We tell them that you deserve death. You deserve to be punished. You deserve to die. But there is one who was substituted on our behalf. He gave His life where we could, so that we could live. And that's what we see in this passage. First Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is that lamb who substitutes for us. He gave His life so that we might live. So that we could live. Not only that, we see in Jesus in Isaac's response where He is the suffering servant. Isaac goes up, he says nothing. He is just completely obedient to the Father. Just as Isaac carries his wood up, so Jesus carries the cross and He goes and He willingly lays His life down in submission to the will of the Father. Jesus in a much greater way because Jesus actually died becomes the One who willingly gave His life for us. We also see in Abraham's response, and I just think it's important just to note this. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. When, when, when we see in Scripture, we see Jesus, I mean, God says of His Son, He says, this is My beloved Son, the One I love in whom I am well pleased. He says that in a couple of occasions in Matthew. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will, we, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What is this about? This is about a picture of the way God is going to rescue all of humanity through the seed of Abraham. He will send one who will give His life. It will be His one and only Son. When you look at this story, and you sit in awe and wonder, you realize that Abraham's son was saved. But God crucified His Son so that we, just like Isaac, might live. I don't know where you are today. Honestly, we're so familiar sometimes that we may not really stop and think of the great sacrifice that God has offered for us. The Scripture, as we've studied over and over, it shows God's love for us. And even this hymn this morning, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen One bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. 
I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Our hearts should overflow with gratitude as we think of the One who willingly gave His life for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the story of Abraham and Isaac that pointed to the greater story of You giving Your Son for us. Lord, if there are those who are not trusting in the Son today, who are here and have never believed, have never repented and trusted in Christ, I pray they will not leave here without turning from their sin and trusting in Him. And for us who are here, who know the marvelous grace that's been given to us, I pray, God, don't let us lose our wonder. In Christ's name, amen.